So I, um, I kidnapped Holy Mary, Mother of God. Now, obviously, I did not kidnap the actual Mother Mary. Um, that would be just physically impossible. Uh, but the way people reacted, you'd think I had. And so it was uh, a rival high school in our town in northern Jersey, the local Catholic school, and I was in the public school. And uh, there's a big, fierce rivalry between these schools, and they were largely better at everything than we were. And uh, so one night, a friend or two and I decided that we were going to exact our revenge, and we stole Mary from the front of their school. So talk about needing her to pray for this sinner now and at the hour of my death. The cool thing was we decided that um, we wanted to, kind of like, what do you do with her now that you have her, right? She's in the trunk, like, what do you do? Because uh, she was rather large. And, uh, and so uh, we're like, oh, you know, let's hide her in plain sight. And so we actually took her to the police station. And they had a garden in the front of the police station with lights, like, kind of pointing into the middle of the garden. And so we snuck up in the middle of the night, and we put her right there in the middle of the garden. So it looked like it's where she belonged, except, of course, it was the police station. And uh, so the ironies were absolutely beautiful and delightful to enjoy. And it took them weeks to figure out that she wasn't supposed to be there. And, of course, they didn't know where the statue had been stolen from. And so anyway, um, it took a while. It was fun. And I really do think that, that Mary would not be upset about the whole thing. In fact, I have a feeling that when, when, I, when, I, when I tell her this story in, in heaven... Uh, that she will get a kick out of it. That's really what I'm hoping. And, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I don't think that she's praying for me in heaven, praying for my forgiveness or out, looking out for my soul. In fact, I don't think she is or any of the saints are for that matter. It's uh, not what they do. So, you know, you don't need to, to be praying to these icons or images or statues when you need to sell your property or if you lose something. Or if, uh, you know, you have been wandering around and, and uh, you're wondering if someone will keep you safe, there are no patron saints of anything according to the scriptures, and yet we still do this. We still bury statues upside down in the back of our yards, and we clutch beads, and we rub medallions, and we pray to totems, and we bow before statues, and all of these kinds of things, because these images, they're powerful to us in some way. Ironically, God never wanted us to create an image of him to worship. Rather, he put his image in us so we would represent him. And you see, we, we, we get this, this whole thing messed up. I mean, talk about being confused as a species. We just, we, we took the very thing that he wanted of us and we, we twisted it and we turned it upside down. No wonder things are so out of whack. I mean, think that through with me for a minute. God honored us with a privilege and a responsibility of representing him in this world. That's what the scriptures tell us. And yet many of us, we, we sort of plod through life with barely a thought 
as to the bigger picture because everything has been turned upside down. We're actually asking all the wrong questions. We ask, you know, what am I supposed to do at work today? You know, I understand it. It's a valid question. We ask a question like that, but we, but we, but, but we ought to be asking, why am I actually here, like on this planet? Because what you're going to do at work today should be informed by what you're actually doing here. We say, you know, I wonder, you know, what's going to happen in the next five years or 10 years or 30 years or what is my retirement going to look like and how do I start planning for that? And yet, we ought to be wondering what eternity is going to be like. And what's the, what, is, what are the values of eternity? And what's the currency in eternity? We ask, what is it that God can do for me rather than what is it that God is calling me to do in this world now? And we wonder why we have this low-grade anxiety, this sort of creeping sense of meaninglessness. If you have ever wondered about the movies that they won't make of you when you're dead, you might very well be experiencing a full-blown existential crisis or at least some simmering form, a little slow boil, this little idea or this doubt, little insecurity about the meaning of much of your life. Many feel like, you know, my life... Life might even be fine to you. It might, even, it might even be going good, you would say. And yet then why is it you're still saying, but I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. Something isn't quite right. Listen, church, you are made by God, unique and beautiful. And I don't care what Trevor says. That's physically beautiful, too. You're not the only beautiful person in the room, Trevor. Where is he? But we're, we're beautiful, made by God, bestowed with a, a crown of honor. He gives us a crown of honor whereby he ordains you as a royal priest in a celestial temple. He grants you meaning and purpose by entrusting the responsibilities of that temple to you to represent his interests in the world. This morning, I want to take a blitz through the Bible. I want to build a theological foundation for this, this doctrine we call the, the priesthood of all believers. And then I want to reflect just a, a very, very briefly on kind of the historical loss and recovery of this truth. And then I want to end with an encouragement from John Piper. So, the, so we got a, a long ways to go and a little ways to do, to do it. So uh, here we go. If you're a note taker, uh, you're going to want to kind of crank along with us. The whole of creation now, the whole of creation from the Bible is conceived of as God's temple. Everything in the whole of the universe is conceived of. Now in Genesis, we see what that looks like. Because in Genesis, the Garden of Eden is an image of the greater created cosmos. Now, there are all sorts of parallels. I won't be able to develop them all, but parallels between creation and the earth and the temple and the garden that was in Eden. And so there's decorations in the temple and carvings and the embroidery and the garments and the entrance to the temple, it faced to the east, uh, just like the entrance to the garden faced to the east. 
both the tree of knowledge that was in the garden and the Ark of the Covenant that was in the temple, both of them were sources of wisdom and they were protected by a curse of death. A river flowed from Eden and through it and will one day again flow from the eternal heavenly temple in the book of Revelations and will water the earth. And so you see all of these kind of parallels which point to this idea that the Garden of Eden is actually a temple. And sometimes, you know, we, we, we miss it in our first reading or two or three, but when, you, when you, you see how it all lines up, for instance, there are three spaces given in the Garden of Eden. You have the Garden of Eden, which is in Eden. That's why it was the Garden of Eden. So you have the Garden, which is the inner place, and then you have the, the place outside of that, which was Eden. And then outside of those boundaries, you have the rest of the world. And in the temple, you had the Holy of Holies, and then you had the inner court, and then you had the outer courts. And you see these kinds of parallels happen over and over and over again with the same kind of jewels mentioned and the rivers mentioned and all of this kind of stuff. Anyway, the point of it is that the Garden of Eden was actually this arboreal garden temple. Why does this matter for us? Well, because God put us in that temple. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea. This is going to be a key idea later. Fish of the sea and the birds of the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. This idea is God, gave, he created an icon, us, his image. He put inside of us, we, male and female, together, he created them. And then he blesses us and he says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, of, fish in the sea. Again, it's this idea, ruling over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so here God puts us in this garden temple. Now many religions place their gods in their temple, right? So they create a temple, they have an image of their god, they put them in. It, it's the reverse of what was supposed to be. We were the image of God put in his temple. No wonder we have such sort of a, a, a visceral desire to put images of our gods in our, in our man-made temples because this is actually what God was accomplishing with us. He was putting us, the image of God, in us, in his temple. But even more than that, Adam and Eve are told to multiply, to subdue the whole of the outer courts, the outer world, and to bring it under the rule of this garden temple. It's a beautiful picture. They were supposed to extend the borders of Eden over the whole of the planet. Why? Because then the image of God that was in humanity that was be multiplying, right? Why multiply? Right? We make a whole lot about it. That was the purpose of humanity. Yes, because we held the image of God. And as we multiplied and we filled the whole of the planet, we would represent God on every continent, in every land, in every city. The image of God would now be present. Adam and Eve, in this way, are the first priests. Look what he says. Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And we look at that and we go, oh, I guess he gave him like a pair of clippers or something. And they made him like, a, like he's, he's pruning the bushes and he's looking out for the animals and all that kind of stuff. But the same words are used elsewhere of the priests doing their work in the temple. 
This is priestly language. You won't know it till you get further into the Levitical priesthood, but when you go back and read it, you start to go, oh my goodness, that's what he was talking about. This is to serve and to guard the temple. It's used in multiple places about the work of the priests. You know, and so this isn't simply about pruning shrubs or anything like that, but this is the work of a priest in the temple of God. See, this is where we find our identity. This is who we are. This is who we were made to be. Like Adam and Eve before us, we are priests. We are temple makers. It's who we were meant to be. And until you step into your identity as a royal priest, you will live with dissatisfaction and restlessness. It's who you are meant to be. So we fast forward now, skipping right through a whole lot of stories into the history of the nation of Israel. In Exodus 19, we read, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the entire nation of Israel was meant to be a priesthood for the whole of the world. So God took his special anointing that he put on Adam and Eve, this special privilege, and he gave it to the nation of Israel and said, through you, the whole world will be blessed. You will stand as a priest between me and the rest of the people who live in the outer courts. That is your responsibility to represent me. It is your privilege to be my hands and my feet. You are to be for me a whole kingdom made up of priests a holy people. So we find not only our identity in this, but we also find our calling because the Israelites, they knew what this meant. They understood the priesthood they had. They were more familiar with it than, than any of us would be. They knew what this meant. They were called to teach and to preach and to read the scriptures and to care and shepherd uh, for the flock and to, and to pray and to intercede in prayer for the people, to discern truth, to grow in wisdom. All of the things that you would associate with a priest was the responsibility of the Israelites to the world. They were going to be a blessing through sacrificial living. And so now we find that it wasn't just our identity as priests, but it was also our calling. We were given the privilege and the responsibilities of it. So you get into the New Testament and you think to yourself, oh, all right, well, that was the nation of Israel. So we had Adam and Eve, I get it, and then we have the nation of Israel, and I get that. But then what happens when we get to the New Testament, we find St. Peter telling us, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. He's taking the same language and applying it directly to us as Jesus' followers, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into this wonderful light. He goes on to say that once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, now that you have received mercy, now that you have been established as a priest in God's kingdom, then you now will represent him to the world, the mantle of priesthood 
has been put on you, the followers of Jesus. You know, you thought you were an engineer or a school teacher or an accountant. Even the lawyers here are not really just lawyers. You are, you are paying the bills with what you are doing here. That's not who you are. Who you are is priest in the king's temple. I mean, think this through. By divine creation and calling, you are now a servant in the temple of the great king. Now, the whole of the Bible ends in the book of Revelation. And a whole of history gets told and wrapped up in that book as well with an emphasis on what's going to come in the future. And so you move all the way through. We started in, Rev in Genesis. We're all the way now through Old and New Testament. And we get to the book of the Revelation, and here's what we see them singing. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll. They're singing this to Jesus. And to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. The sacrifice of Jesus was a priestly offering. He is in fact the chief and perfect priest. He is our model priest and he is the way, the reason that we now are able to have access into the temple because we have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, the perfect priest shed for us. But he goes on and he says that you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Reign on the earth, this is from Genesis. This is the reestablishment of the promise in Eden. Thousands of years later, looking to a future that was thousands of years off, they said, that is where you are heading. Priests to rule and to reign with God Almighty. And then he goes on toward the end of, of that he says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. Thrones, ruling, leadership. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ. They reigned with Christ. You see, I'm talking about an establishment of your glory and your honor at the hands of a gracious and good and powerful God. That's who you are. And if I have a soapbox for just a minute, since I put the word mark of the beast up here, I should at least mention it, right? So the mark of the beast, the way we have to understand this is we studied Revelation a few months back, but the mark of the beast talks about being marked on their, on their forehead and on their wrist. And of course, this means what you think and, and what you do. It's your identity as a follower of Christ and what you believe about him as Savior and Lord. And it's what you do in your priestly service. That's the mark that Jesus puts on you. This is a counterfeit mark. This is a fake mark. And so how do you know what the mark of the beast is? Well, the mark of the beast is the thing that counterfeits the mark of Jesus, which means it takes away your knowledge of who Jesus is to you as your Savior, and it takes away your priestly work, and you no longer start working. You do the work of Jesus, you do and the work of a priest, but you do the work for another kingdom. 
the kingdom of Satan. And though I can't believe I have to say this out loud, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. And if it is, I'm screwed. Because it means as a fully vaccinated person that I have lost my salvation. And I thought trusting in Jesus was enough. Um, the point of it is, we always talk about this as like a real thing and a market's coming and it's going to be about commerce and industry and all of that and you're missing the whole of the point. It's about who you are as a priest in God's kingdom and it's about the blood of Jesus marking you, an anointing, a covering, a cleansing and causing you to live in the fullness of your identity so that you might do the work of a priest. He ends the whole of the book of Revelation like this. He says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This isn't an idea that just shows up in one or two random places. This idea is woven through the whole entire narrative of the Bible. It starts at the very beginning. It's, it is an, an essence of who, in fact, Jesus made us to be and who we will be in the returning kingdom. And he's calling us to live this out. Now, so many of us, we grew up, we were looking at the priests, pastors, and we had drawn this fairly hard line between them and ourselves, and this largely because of what happened around 250 to 300 A.D. You see, for the first 200 years or so in the Bible and for the first 200 years or so, all the early church fathers, Justin and Origen and others, they never spoke of the ordained clergy as priests. They used the language of priest for Jesus, and they used it for the whole priesthood of all believers. And then around 250 or so, we started losing it. And a whole series of teachers started differentiating between priest and people. And it was Tertullian, and then we had Cyprian, who started saying, you know, things about the communion and about baptism being reserved only for the ordained. And then a couple of the, the early popes, Galatius, and then we had uh, Gregory Seventh, And these guys continued to teach this idea for over a thousand years. And a whole new hierarchy of priests was created within Christendom. And it wasn't undone until Martin Luther crashed on the scene and said, what you are teaching is not biblical. All of God's people are his priests. And every one of them has access to the Father and access to forgiveness through Jesus and carries the privilege and the responsibility of being a priest in this kingdom. And he insisted that the church recover this doctrine that we call the priesthood of all believers. And this is so vital for us because here, imagine this for with me for a minute. For over 1,000 years, the church lost this doctrine. For 1,000 years years. We struggled to regain our identity and our responsibilities, which tells me that it's easy for us to leave it forgotten. It tells me it's easy for us to leave it on the wayside. It's easy for us to abdicate our responsibilities as priests and offload them to the professional clergy so that we're free of the responsibilities 
I think we can be intimidated by it and scared of it. We get so wrapped up in our self-focused lives that we aren't even sure we want to be priests. And yet, as Christ followers, we have a responsibility to the whole of the creation, to the animals and to nature and to society, the structures that we create, and of course, to the people. Because we will stand between God and the people and we will offer sacrifices for them. I want to show you guys a clip. Many of you are familiar with it. We've shown it before. It is, a, it is worth the seven minutes that it's going to take to go through. It's from John Piper. It's old. It's dated in some ways. Get past that and just soak in these incredible ideas that he is bringing to us. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them, which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. And you don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed 
in Cameroon. Ruby Eliasson, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick, in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my Shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. 
And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. What is your priestly service in God's temple? How will you make your life matter? Do you view every life situation as an opportunity to extend God's temple and to make his presence known? Are you living as a priest and working for the good of the kingdom? We want to be able to partner with you in this. And if you're listening to this and you're getting a sense and you're saying, you know what, that's just not the world that I live in. It's not even, it hasn't even been something that has been on my mind. We want to encourage you to find a place in the kingdom to do your priestly work. And there are such a ton of incredible opportunities to do that. In the Old Testament, the temple priests had all sorts of different kinds of jobs. Some would sing and some would collect wood and some would sacrifice the animals and some would repair the temple and some would, would continue to, to represent the people and go and settle disputes in the midst of the people and all of these kinds of things. But all of the priests would participate in the work. So do you have an actionable area where you can exercise your priestly role? And if you don't, we want to encourage you to do that now. You can fill that out. You can text that number. You can open up the app. You can talk to one of us when you're heading out. You can come up at the end of the service and let the people, the, the church leaders who are going to hear, be here, pray for you. Because what we're hoping for, what we want to encourage you in, is to not let that little sense that you're feeling now that something is awry, that it all is not quite right in the way that you view your privilege and your responsibility in this world, the honor that God has bestowed upon you. You do not live in that reality, and we want you to. We want you to. Because the world is destined to be God's temple. That's where we're going. And it is going to happen as we continue to fulfill our mission as priests in God's kingdom. We, in God's image, we will, we will fill our sphere wherever we find ourselves. We will fill our sphere with the image of God because it has been put inside of you. And it has been recreated and reborn in you with your conversion to Christ. And together we will continue to push back the darkness. And when we do that, we get to participate in the revealing of the true kingdom of God in us and in this world. And we want you to be a part of it, to expand his temple wherever we go. Let me pray for us. Father, what we're hoping for here this morning and why we talk about these things and why we look at the whole of scriptures and why we get a warning from history. We do this, Lord, because we know it is so easy for us to be distracted by the trivialities of this world to fall into patterns of, of comfort 
and of ease. Lord, it is so easy for us to look to another and say, no, that is their responsibility. You would never have honored me in that way and you would never have, have called me out and put me up on this place where you would crown me with honor and dignity beyond anything I could have imagined. You don't even believe it. Lord, we don't even believe it about ourselves. I'm asking that you would stir up hearts right now. You're working in people's hearts, Father. You're doing this great thing. I'm praying, Lord, that they would yield to you. That they would make today the day that they commit to live every moment of every day for the rest of their lives as a priest in your kingdom with all of the, 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 the honor and the dignity and the responsibility that comes with it. We ask it all in our great high priest's name. Amen.